0: So Dr. Coon's in the last 2 weeks I stumbled across the name of a man I'll share his name in a moment who I hadn't seen this guy's face since I saw him speaking to a large crowd where they made sure everyone turned off the 5G so they're like they're like a big group of inside conspiracy hunter we're not going to let it happen people sometime around 2021 20, or so and he gave what I thought was a pretty instructive you know layout of the money chain that runs from the pandemic up to the highest order of of most of the macro companies on the planet, especially in the, the big pharma and food world. And in any case, so I, you know I saw that and I thought, okay, yeah, cool. That ties some dots together that I, I already knew were there, but he, he did it. So he shows up just in the last two weeks though, and he was in a conversation with a pastor who I don't really know. I stumbled across all this the way that you kind of do when you're out looking for you know content or information about the present times. In any case, he just ends up making two points that I I don't know if you know this or not. These items, you know, they're they're, they're minutia in one sense of present day kind of uh, paperwork, um, but he makes the claim based on this that you know we're no longer working in a, a realm of of prophecy when we're talking about things like coming impending societal economic collapse uh, this isn't about prophecy this is actually on the receipts and so here's what he says and I, I just would like your take really on you know the boldness of that kind of clarity because of what he'll say afterwards but but this okay. is the, the point i want your points on uh, which is that it is on paper that Social Security will run to zero in 2027 like there is there's no stopping it. There's, there, there is an H.R. 521 they're trying to pass, which would require that the Social Security administration pay benefits. And you can find out more at six zero plus dot com. A member handed that to me this this, this week at the same time. But, you know, it would seem that the the payout of Social Security benefits is going to stop in 2027. And this has a ramification, which means that every hospital that you see now can't stay open. It won't be able to afford to stay open. And that has a ripple effect. The other thing he pointed out was that 2026 or or maybe even sooner, we're going to reach a point at which the capacity of the United States and its taxing infrastructure to pay the interest rates. And the, now I'm going to lose the, the technical term, but the um, effectively the interest rate that keeps it from our debt as our national debt being insolvent, we're going to hit that point where we can no longer make that payment based upon our GDP. And, and that will be around 2026. And that both these things are going to happen, you know, then on paper, if not sooner. And so now, you know, when he says, if you know, a storm is coming, get ready for the storm. I ask, okay, so how valuable is this information, say, to my my church council? And that's really my question.
1: To your church council, personally, it, it would be about as valuable as it would be to anybody else. I think I want to start by, by questioning the sort of Lutheran pastor gassing off decisiveness with which he made those points. Whoever he is, I don't know who he is. Yeah, yeah. Is that... He is taking matters of probability and turning them into certainties. And that is a really good way to get people to listen to you. It's just not necessarily true. So I don't I don't actually have faith in either of the things he was discussing, whether the United States is long-term financial solvency or the solvency specifically of the social security program, which relies obviously on there being more people paying in than people taking out. And with our fertility rate and our age distribution and our general population, not to speak of the demands on government welfare made by whoever is coming in whatever numbers from whatever places in the world, all of those folks are on the government dole as well. So it's not that I have faith that he doesn't have, but what you're looking at, not so much as, at, as certainties, but as matters of probability, is will those things be funded by some means? Will yet another scheme to ensure their solvency, and there were worries about our population structure already in the 70s and 80s vis-a-vis Social Security, will those schemes come into being so that these kinds of catastrophic societally catastrophic things don't happen even even if he's wrong individually locally whatever level you want to analyze this on and i think that those those varying levels are 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 really important particularly in times of dissolution of various kinds whether whether the banks are failing or not as it were but whether he's precisely right or i think he's doing something that is extremely common in our time. And, it, it, you know, it's kind of ironic that he says these are not matters of prophecy because what he's doing is precisely what prophets do because it, right. the prophets mostly speak about the present time. And that gets forgotten because, <laughs> well, because people don't actually read the Bible, but, but, but it also gets forgotten because the word prophecy has to do almost entirely with the future for us colloquially in our language and therefore we forget all the stuff that has to do with the present to speak prophetically in that way is to force people into a a point of decision or of necessary change and that's totally fine the reason I, i i try not to talk that way most of the time is because i don't have a gift of insight concerning the immediate or distant future other than the basis of experience, which is really all that history is. History is just looking at other people's experience in addition to one's own to understand both the present and the future as well as the past, which that only that last part seems obvious to people when they think about history. So what I'm saying is prophecy is mostly actually about the present and history is mostly actually about the future. But. In thinking that way, or in studying those things, I try not to talk in this way, like by then, by this time, or impose some structure, like you know that whatever that cycles guy is that you that that you brought up a couple a couple weeks Was it back, Dalio, yeah, whatever, uh. yeah, yeah, right, where it's like where it's like okay, well. Yeah, there may have been such a structure to, you know, American equities markets in the 20th century or something, but the idea that this somehow maps onto the rest of history, you know, is harder to maintain reason being people will change their lives pretty radically if a sense of urgency is conveyed. So I try to be really careful about the things about which I'm urgent Because if I'm urgent about everything, it's not just that I lose credibility or something. I'm actually more concerned that people are altering their lives radically for something that isn't actually coming or doesn't actually matter that much or will play out in a different manner. And the idea, for example, that social security is underfunded or poorly funded on a long enough timescale that's obviously true short of a baby boom and a baby boom is not immigration i think that sometimes people think that and this is the way that immigration is generally talked about in western countries today is that it's it's somehow it's going to be a supplement for or or a replacement for all of the kids that danes or americans or canadians or whatever are not having it, and it's not just that when immigrants move to developed countries, their birth rate also plummets. It's that having a bunch of, you know, having three children per, you know, married woman in a country is a very different thing than having like, you know, one kid who got here when he was 12 and, you know, parts of his family, plus whoever was born here where you end up with a population structure that obviously will bankrupt us sooner or later because most people require government assistance to exist. Obviously that's insolvent on a long enough time scale. but is it going to happen in two years? I don't know. And, and I don't want my church council who does actually listen to the show. <laughs> ah. Um, I don't want my church council to, we have we have enough of our own alarmists uh, just by dint of personality. They don't need to worry specifically about what's going to happen to Social Security in 2026, because there are other longer-term trends that are just as easy to see that we should think about as well, like where we are placed geographically and and other things like that.
0: Well, th- those are precisely the reason why I consider you know, economic viability of the network of money we're in, right? That, yeah. that is something that somehow somebody should like pray about, <laughs> you know, at, at yeah. least, right? right? And and then, you know, understanding that in, in the course of history, and, and feel free to debate this hypothesis, but yeah. in the course of history, war is very often a cover for financial insolvency. That is, if we could just pay each other, we wouldn't fight, but uh, instead now- there isn't a easy win win for all, and, and okay. war comes. And so, insolvency, yeah. being what looks like it is in our path as Americans, and the idea that we're going to continue today of, of a civil war, a revolutionary war, a war on the soil, I think is yeah. maybe just what I want to think about. You know, put it in that context. Yeah,
1: yeah. Let me start with the, with a question of of finances' relationship to war. Is that there are for both the American Civil War and for the Revolutionary War comprehensive explanations of them. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't think they're right, but they're comprehensive, comprehensive explanations of them. That the reason that these conflicts occurred is because of financial interests. That's that's actually also the claim, and the claim is probably strongest and best known to the listeners. So we'll take this as as the example. That's the claim for why the South fought was to defend the system of slavery. And plenty of Southerners on the discord and off the discord are n- are now going to talk about states rights and whatever. And believe me, I, I understand your side. and you know that that, that you're going bring that that, that you're going to bring that up. and and i I also think it was part of it. I also think that the Confederacy. Would not have needed to fight if not for the sake of preserving slavery. Like if you're saying it's just about states' rights, that that's that's when you're asking too much of me to believe. Yeah. So at least part of it is to preserve slavery, right? Which is in a certain sense just an economic system. It's it's a way of organizing labor in your society. When when you say that, the thing you have to reckon with is the vast majority of Southerners who fight not only don't own slaves, but but they don't largely because they can't. So even when there is a, a very clear and very large economically specific cause to fighting, that doesn't and and can't because of the nature of the kinds of things that nations go to war to preserve, which usually are of benefit to their, elites not of benefit necessarily to the mass of their population. The vast majority, therefore, of Southern soldiers go to fight. Yeah, maybe they go to fight for states' rights or they go to fight for whatever, but they're not actually specifically going to fight for their own economic advantage. And the South, you know, if you if you just want to talk about preserving their economic system, could have made a few smarter moves. Because they put their entire economic system on the line by fighting a power that actually has a navy, which they don't particularly and don't put together very much of even in the entire course of the war, which chokes off their economic system and uh, shuts down their major exports. So being an, an agricultural export economy, they can't really export a whole lot throughout the entirety of the Civil War this already devastates them even before they're conquered by northern forces. So when even when, okay, even when you have very clear economic factors going into why a people would want to fight with another people or another group of people in their own country and and we can talk about other factors and other things that that cause me to think that if such a thing happened in the United States today, it would be more like a revolution than like a civil war. But even where you have, clear geographic division, clear political division, clear economic cause, it still doesn't really explain why people fight. And there's something, I think, to me, therefore, mysterious, not in the sense of being completely inexplicable, but mysterious in the sense of being outside the realm of normal causes, right? That when you're talking about a situation of war, and especially of descent into war. Something you notice if you look at it enough is that people stop behaving as they are sliding into that situation. And then obviously in the depths of it, in the depths of prosecuting that war and during that war, maybe dying in that war, they slide into a state of mind, or you might even say of being, that is very different from peacetime. And If people are really interested in this, the American Civil War has the best resources for studying this because you can see almost all the major players on both sides running the country and the army with each other in roughly the 20 to 30 years before the American Civil War kicks off. So you can see them move from sort of like the best of friends. I mean, literally in some cases, the best of friends into a point where they are ready to kill each other and in fact do. So this is something where I'm, I'm skeptical that economics or finance and their health actually explain everything because the way that people get into violence, particularly against people who speak the same language, who live near them, with whom they're familiar, right? Not to speak of fighting against people from other countries of other of other tongues of other cultures this kind of thing there's something mysterious about that 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 really is not explained by even acting in one's own financial or economic self-interest because the south for instance i I don't think does if they had been like slightly more diplomatic you know in, in roughly the five years before the election of lincoln a lot of things would have been very different
0: i think the germans use the word zeitgeist for a
1: good reason yeah so I mean what what do you think zeitgeist means in that way
0: in that way describing how the pressure on the human social group culture empire yeah. whatever yeah wind the wind blowing the ghost haunting them
1: yeah even right.
0: through history doesn't really let them know what it's doing and you can sometimes smell it like again, you're like, oh, there's this thing I can see it. It's gonna happen, right? But it's the zeitgeist is just more complex as yeah. a concept than yeah. say, you know, economy,
1: right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 for that reason, I mean, it, I I think things like that are extremely powerful. Most people do not take the time to step back and reflect on what they might be. So just an example in our own time is that a lot of people, this is completely, in my mind, this is completely separate from the question of quote, mental health. And we, you know, whatever we talked for like weeks about mental health or something. And, and I think people want us to talk more and, (laughs) and I'm kind of talked out on a topic because I don't even know what it means. I understand people are unhappy. I understand they're weirded out. I understand whatever, you know, and that, that makes them brittle. That makes them stressed. But even apart from whatever mental health means, obviously people are kind of frayed in how they handle things and how they react to each other. There seem a lot of people are living on a thin margin. And I don't just mean that financially, although It's also true financially. And because of that, because of those thin margins that people are operating on, you know, you are how far from personal insolvency if one to two to three things go differently over the course of the next five years in your life. Because of that, our zeitgeist is sort of defined by this manic energy, you know, people talk so fast. They they are so wound up. Intense conflicts are so close to the surface. And what's really remarkable to me is that just in the past a couple of weeks, that conflicts being so close to the surface thing, you know, I would kind of expect that among my own, you know, whatever, my own ethnic group or something, right? If you told me that two people from Pennsylvania were yelling at each other in public, like I wouldn't be that surprised. Oh, that's kind of, you know, that would be weird, but like not. Everyone gets over it. Yeah, it yeah, 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 right. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, it's like a thunderstorm. It pours for like five seconds and then it's over. What, whatever.
0: There's no like lifelong grudge. He's not going to take out the guy's house next week. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: right. So what you're saying, is, you're making me nostalgic for something that, that I think <laughs> since, especially since covid uh has midwesterners are doing this and i'm kind of like is the sky falling you know midwesterners are being grumpy and impolite in public like like what what is going on you know but i but i'm hearing this from people is why i'm saying this this is not this is not my own observation i was just in kansas and i thought this is really pleasant but but people are telling me otherwise in their mm-hmm. own you know, in their own lives and the things they're seeing and the people around them. Well, so, so the, the story, yeah. the,
0: the zeitgeist at the moment you diagnose as sort of manic wound up
1: fear. Frayed. Yeah. yeah.
0: And you asked earlier, you know, what makes a man or a woman, yeah. a man, a violent, you know, what, what drives a man to violence? And it's not only fear, but if you're going to drive the masses to violence, if you are a an elite person with an economic concern that nobody else is going to care about but you care about. Yeah. How are you going to get that big group to go shoot that other group? You're going to, you're going to tell a story that drives them to fear. And right. this is old hat. I mean, everyone who's listening to this, you don't think we have to really debate this point or pull it apart. But that, but that that what's happening now is we've been driven by by a story of of fear, of of scarcity to the level of you know, survival danger. Always just about to be there in places where for hundreds of years, really, I mean, things were hard, right? But they weren't living with this kind of tension day to day. Goodness gracious. So, so like that pressure, that story on us now, I think this is how you do get a population group to react violently. I think we're seeing it already, you know, in the cities, particularly good.
1: In the the case, this is is one place where the revolution is more helpful than the Civil War, because particularly in what they call the middle states, which are like New York and Pennsylvania, most notably, but also in the South, people who completely disagree with each other live right next to each other. I mean, truly right next to each other, but certainly within striking distance of each other, They, they live in the same places. That's that's pretty different from what happens with the Civil War, where the Civil War is it, it resembles the present day in the sense that the rhetoric has been building for years and years and years. So when I recommend to people that they read the Christopher Caldwell book, The Age of Entitlement, it's it's not because it's like the the silver bullet. For everything going on in modern America, but it's because you can see, for instance, how talk of rights attached to specific groups, right, protected classes, whether they're racial classes, sexual classes, um, whatever they are, has supplanted the notion of individual rights, such as free speech, as being necessarily protected by our government and and promoted. And if you have protected classes, you also have unprotected classes. You have disfavored classes. You have men or you have whites or whatever you have. The reason that's helpful is because it, that resembles that long buildup where you can see, you can read something from 1973 and think, was this written in 2021? You know, it, it, the times look very similar to each other and there's a long buildup in the late 70s and early 80s, that buildup doesn't result in complete dissolution, societal dissolution in the way that we are currently trending. Mm-hmm. But the buildup of rhetoric of groups against each other does very much resemble the Civil War where first the South is is massively aggrieved and and suspects that abolitionism is a much bigger deal in the North than it, you know, to be honest, ever actually was as far as numbers and percentages go. And then the North is aggrieved in turn. And, and so that spirals. The reason that you kind of have to take that dynamic, but then map it onto what's going on with the revolution where you don't, you don't have a similarly long buildup. You have a you have a long buildup of grievances against Britain, but not against each other specifically. Is that, as soon as those grievances against a more distant group the federal government in our case you'd have you know to draw the analogy as soon as those somehow spill into local conditions what happens is that somebody who really wasn't a problem for me becomes a problem and the the way that these things actually shake out is honestly when you when you read about them I think tremendously surprising to give you a a specific example, right, is that you have a group who throughout their history, and we've talked about them before, and I've blamed plenty of things on them before, but Quakers, you know, not only founded one of our colonies, they actually founded parts of what became New Jersey too. But they were on record saying, we don't participate in wars. Like, we just don't do that. And they had actually ceded power a little over twenty years before the revolution kicks off, in Pennsylvania to non Quakers functionally, in order to defend the frontier, so they they had kind of honorably do it right. Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> they had kind of honorably like realized, okay, the game's up now. Like the pen the Pen family wasn't even Quaker at that point, even though they still ruled the colony, and so they basically said, you know, we can't keep this up, we can't keep this going, and uh, and that's just the way it is and so they they sort of stepped out of the out of the limelight by the time the revolution rolls around the quakers have the misfortune to be several things okay one is they try to be neutral in a situation that is essentially a civil war you know lowercase c lowercase w they're they're trying to be neutral and the problem is <laughs> <laughs> Neutrality, you know, unless you're Switzerland and you live in the mountains and everyone has a gun, and they're not it, neutral. Is, is practically they're impossible. Not. I mean, it, it, it just is. It it doesn't. I mean, I say this as somebody who just naturally, personally, doesn't doesn't generally get terribly emotionally swept up by other people's rhetoric. I think I I think I do too much rhetoric to be able to. You know, it's it's kind of I have like an ironic distance from all rhetoric. i hear so you know i i would like neutrality as much as anybody else (laughs) but but in a case of war and particularly of civil war it's it's just functionally impossible and and what happens to them is that it fractures them internally um and there's plenty of other dynamics we can talk about here but the Quakers have a lot of a lot of things going on at once. It fractures them internally. So there's a whole group called the Free Quakers. If you visit Benjamin Franklin's grave, just across the street to the west is the Free Quaker Meeting House. And those are the guys who thought it was okay to shoot. And they were read out of normal Quaker meeting in order to, to found that group. And uh where they go and and whether they come back to the main group after the war is is a case-by-case basis so it fractures the quakers internally many of them particularly the most prominent ones and and this is something else to think about and it's part of to my mind the insanity of people being like you know kind of looking forward to a civil war looking forward Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. a climactic conflict like For the sake of just the preservation of human life, continued slow decline with slow rebuilding out of that decline by various groups.
0: Yeah, much better.
1: Yes. Because what happens is that these people, particularly their most prominent members, okay, who were kind of just trying to stay out of the way, are handled especially by the the rebels or the patriots or whatever you want to call kind of the the side we now think of as the Americans even though there are Americans on both sides particularly by the patriots or rebels they are handled very roughly and many of them are have not only their businesses and their livelihoods seized so you know basically the more prominent you are the more you have to lose the more you do in fact lose in a situation of war but they are, they are in some cases lynched. They are much more often put on trial for collusion or collaboration with the enemy. And many of them are sent into exile of all places in Western Virginia. And they, they come back, if at all, many of them die there. But they come back, if at all, in dribs and drabs. And, and with what they had and what they were destroyed, right? And, and that's simply the price of neutrality. In that case. So there's there's more to say about the other groups and other conflicts, but I, I thought I, I wanted to start with the Quakers because they are, to my mind, one of the clearest examples of what is a reaction. You know, you don't have to be a pacifist. It's a reaction that a lot of people would like to have, which is to, to keep your head down. <laughs> and and the problem is that other people don't want you to keep your head down, right? they They want you to affirm what it is that they're doing and what it is that they're willing to kill for,
0: so I couldn't help but think about Lutheranism a little bit as you spoke about Quaker neutrality. and for, <laughs> for the sake of the present, you know, we yeah. may as well just include everyone who calls themselves a Lutheran and still has a Bible in the pew. Sure. The idea that that a movement that exists somewhat ideologically based, somewhat ethnically based, probably a bunch of both could by choosing to not choose a side in what is a ultimately a moral battle in some way it has to be to to avoid choosing a side to defend virtue and truth as they see it ends up fracturing them internally as some will need to do something about it and others will yeah. need to not do something about it because they will still be in the fight. They right. just won't be able to fight. So the fight will happen internally and the fracture will occur. I think we already have seen this taking place since 2020 in in most Lutheran bodies where there are just different different lines now than there were before. I'm not entirely sure what those lines are because I kind of hopped hopped outside a little bit. I was like, I don't want to get in these lines right now. The, um, but, but the lines have been drawn quite differently, I think, In certain ways and and that doesn't mean that different groups don't overlap more or what have you but it does mean that let me just accuse lutheranism of being neutral at the moment and maybe for a while on too many issues including the antichrist being the pope on for that matter but we don't have to go there right now you can go back to the the real (laughs) connection
1: i mean you're you're saying the lines were redrawn well wait because of because of staying open during covid or
0: yeah yeah and, and just yeah. just the way that all of that played out i know who still is is you know uh, trying to enact district policy who is building for a post district world who, who is willing to do it because the group says let's do it for the sake of love who says yes but love requires knowledge right those lines are just not you know organ or praise band Right.
1: Confession, yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, it, it just yeah. it just
0: really changed the the playground. Yeah, and I don't think it's bad. I'm not calling that bad necessarily. Right. I think I think there is a duplicity involved. Actually, a duplicity that that we are not united, that we being neutral are being divided. And I would rather have all the cards on the table myself. That's that's the way I like to play the game. But but I, but we don't do that, which which why I bring it up. And I think you have something to say about that overlap.
1: I, I have something to say along the lines of the lines that are drawn in a time of peace are never in a time of either building conflict or open conflict yeah yeah actually yeah. the actually the lines that matter and 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 we we got to see a preview of that reality right short of open societal conflict not we're not talking about we're not we're not talking about like you you've you fought over something in a church meeting of enormous size or local small size we're talking how does this affect a church and you you can map this onto other groupings because in the revolution for example you have churches that react to things and we can talk about that you also have local associations that are sort of like pressure groups that get remembered as the sons of Liberty or the, you know, local correspondence committee or something. And those are sort of how the Patriots organize themselves. So you have all of these bodies, right? And when the body is not self-consciously united in a specific direction, when it faces pressure, I I think it's kind of an, it, it, it seems to me like almost too obvious to state when you don't bring your own energy to the situation, obviously you will be changed by the energy of those who yeah. do bring energy to the situation. But that's not
0: obvious to state to TV watchers, man. That is not obvious to
1: state to a TV watchers. <laughs> it really is not. Right. It's straight. Right. Up. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't. I. I don't know, I, mean, I mean, it's like. So so in talking about the Missouri senator or whatever, you know, it's like, whatever. I I just run around saying things that I think are 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 true, are the case, and then. You know, I understand that it's not like our culture to openly discuss things. And that's, and that's fine, right? The misery is in a dominant culture is not, not the way that I would do things necessarily. And, and that's, that's fine. It's, I, that's whatever, you know, it is, it is the way.
0: It's fine till it, it doesn't work anymore. I mean, we kind of, but I'm kind of not, you know, yeah, okay. it, does, it doesn't work. It's not working. We hate each other. This is kind of yeah, like Luther what we talked fighting. about
1: this is like when we talked about Lutheran schools like a million years ago. And I was like, you know, you could have good Lutheran schools, and you were like, Oh, you know, is, <laughs> is another that, universe, you know? It's, yeah. I, I think that I I I don't think of these cultural specifics or you know, should we have Lutheran schools or not, or something. There's there's a sense in which these things in my mind are are very subject. To the energy that others are bringing to the situation yeah yeah right therefore they're kind of open and could become something great and could just fall apart i think um, a mistake a lot of people make and this is just in our circles so catholic listeners have their own problems non denom listeners have their own problems reformed listeners have their own problems Reformed listeners, you guys have really great celebrity pastors, but I don't know how you're gonna even communicate with each other across multiple states in your tiny denominations if something bad happens. That's just that's that's a fact and that's a problem that Lutherans in Iowa do not have. Right. We all with have the East our own Coast, problems. They do. I mean, there's different yeah, places yeah, yeah, too. There's yeah. local right. blah blah blah. That's okay. right. So A problem in our circles is being emotionally invested in in a sort of, almost sort of like a, you know, kind of like an online Eastern Orthodox convert version of your church, where your church is perfect, and then, but you're a Lutheran, so you believe in original sin and whatever, and and you've seen enough, and then it's not perfect, and, and like you don't know what to do. I, I don't think being emotionally invested in what it's failing to be it, it doesn't it doesn't even matter because if we're if what if anything that we're saying has any relationship to America in the next 10 years, there will be so much energy, negative mostly, right? Pressure mostly brought to bear on everyone's life, including every group's life, that the idea that the stuff that we familiarly fight over is going to even be the issue let alone matter particularly like i don't in 2019 you know you say to me hey guess what we're gonna have this thing where you know lutherans lutherans have this like really great christology and lutherans believe that you know, Jesus Christ is physically present in the sacrament. I know you're not supposed to say physical, but like, that's what normal people understand by it. Right. Well,
0: yeah. you should say local, local makes more sense. Okay. Yeah. No, I know. You're right. You're right. You're exactly right. Physical <laughs> right. Is exactly Right. I, you know what I
1: mean? I mean, right. do you, do you, you so... gnash him
0: with your teeth, Dr. Koons? Do you yeah. gnash him with your teeth? I know. The, I know. know,
1: huh? <laughs> I, know. I, I, I like being determined by like terms of abuse from 400 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's I, right.
0: That's right. do really let it helpful. die. Make yeah. fools famous.
1: So you're like, Hey, you know, you know, Lutherans believe all that stuff. I'll be like, yeah, you know, that's, that's like pretty basic. You're not even talking about open communion versus closed communion. You're just saying Lutherans believe this. And generally, if you go somewhere in the, and they're doing open communion, it says some great stuff about Christ's physical presence in the sacrament right there in the bulletin where it says that if you believe this, come on up. Okay. So you're like, Hey, there's going to be a problem where like you might not be allowed to do that how do you think lutherans react <laughs> you know so that's an example of incredible energy or pressure pushing on a system a system of doctrine but also a system of life that we have in person church and then something countermands that something goes against that see how human groups do not do not actually react in predictable ways Unless they actually consciously plan to do so, right, right. So if they're if they're not together planning to do it, then they they really they they will just shatter into a thousand pieces, which is what happened. And a lot of us learn differently. And you know, I I know plenty of people who completely disagree with me on stuff that is on my, you know, if you get my self-evaluation tool, you know, what do I personally think about this hot button issue in the Missouri Senate from 1988? You know, here's a guy that completely has a completely different answer to that question. He also admits that, you know, closing was a mistake. Mm -hmm. So the lines get redrawn in situations of conflict in a very big way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was pushing at and what I, what I find know fascinating worth talking about worth building on because those new lines are i think what will endure if this is a if 2020 was just a preview of of you know what we get to go through in societal conflict as congregations like we all got our free free ride to try it
1: right (laughs) yeah so well
0: then we learned who our friends were and 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 they aren't always who we thought they were and doesn't mean that that guy's your enemy we're all in a church body together i'm talking about why are we enemies right we shouldn't we have kind of the real agendas on the table and and i would think again that if it's not social security you know running out in 27 28 i i think the agenda of knowing the negative pressures are coming yeah and being people who are building for that wind I think that that's a unifying story. And that's what then I'll drop this guy's name, David Martin. Okay. I'm not sure I really recommend listening to him at all. I'm curious. He's fascinating. Like Musk. Okay. I, I, I like men that are my age or older who have outperformed the world. I find them fascinating. <laughs> um, in any case, you know, the only, he, his whole thing is, and it, it could be a whole cult for goodness sakes. If you go look at it, it could be a cult, but, but what they're going to do is they're like, look. We're gonna to have to provide our own food. We should start working on that. Let's like, you know, let's get a community together and start making our own food. Uh, we're gonna have to deal with our own energy. Let's start thinking about what that would look like. Right. So, like it's all the stuff you and I have been talking about this whole time. What what this group seems to be doing is unifying. I I don't know. I, I like the the power of the congregational model that you and I are advocating, have been advocating. You kind of defended it when I came out early a little bit too, which is good, which is that. You know, building too big right now on your hunch could turn into a whole sorts of things. You know, and it and the first thing I thought when I saw the pictures of all the you know the food places that they're they say they're building is like, wow, that's real pretty. You know, they made that pretty for a picture. So, so you know, you know, buyer beware. But nonetheless, the notion that if you know the storm is coming, you know, don't stand outside in a field. This is something that we as Congregations, families, individuals must be ready for that the the storm of nothing else, at least the storm of noise, right? The storm of stories, the storm of fear that they're going to tell you to be worried about and get ready and go do this, right? Um, That's already what you're living in every single day, in one sense. Uh, If this turns to actual violence in the streets, right? What happens to the systems you're working on every day? How many of those? benefit you if things change. So I know Dr. Kuntz is quite right. Like if I can just say, this is the way it is. Get ready right now. Listen to me. Like it would, it would really be a lot easier in some ways, but I, I do not feel compelled by the spirit within me to, to say such things. Instead I say is, Hey, 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 hey. S- wake up, <laughs> stop not paying attention to what's actually around you. And then what I just said, how many systems in your daily walk your daily life will endure the kinds of changes a civil war a revolutionary war any of these these topics zombie war you know pick your favorite one w- that will bring and and then test those principles and build better ones based upon what you know not only from scripture and history and and i think one of the, the most important things i tried to say today is like like a, the survival of humanity is hard but not complex it's hard, but not complex. We live in a time of complexity. We made a complex to make it easier. Okay. So it's not going to be as easy, but, but that doesn't mean it's going to be more complex. It's going to get more simple. But that means again, divesting yourself of some of what that zeitgeist is selling you the, the haunting you're being given of, of things that aren't really yours to deal with. You know? Yeah. What do you think there?
1: I, I, I think that I've got another example from the case of the revolution, religiously specific that I think will be helpful to people because they lost so much in the, in the course of the revolution and, and they fell from a great height in doing so and because I have, I have nothing against parishes against congregations. This group would call them parishes rather than congregations but when they when they lack connection they are very vulnerable it's sort of it's it's like the religious version of the nightmare scenario where you you are trying to prepare for the coming storm so you have your generator you have your you've got all your water (laughs) you've got right you're doing you're you're doing a straight survivalist bit right and I think it was a little surprising way back when we talked about this um, Aguirre book about Argentina in, in Argentina's financial descent into chaos, that he found suburbs to be much more secure than rural areas, which is sort of contra the dream of most listeners, and and, and also contra our instincts, like how could you be more secure in a more populous area? But it was because people had the capacity to help each other and didn't need to put all of their time into doing it all themselves. And also that it was harder to hunt them down individually in a way that in you know, where you have an isolated farm, isolated farm, isolated farm, it's easy to just pick them off one by one. And something something very similar happens to the Anglicans during the revolution. The irony being that they are actually the state religion, right? So so if you have, you know, Christian nationalist aspirations, like they, they, uh, they had achieved those things by the time of the revolution in, in several states, some of which people don't even remember sort of had an Anglican state church, like down in the South, let alone, you know, New York state. Sort of functionally, what what's now Columbia University was King's College and it was Anglican, right? So they they have a very solid social position in most of the colonies. They don't have and they don't have a, a local bishop. so the thing that holds them all together, and obviously that's going to function differently depending on your denomination and, and also depending on your polity, right? It's going to be different for an Anglican than it is for a Presbyterian, but they didn't have a local bishop. You had to go all the way to England to get ordained as a priest and then come back. And obviously, plenty of guys got to England where things were easier and said, uh, "I'm not going back." <laughs> right? I think I think I want like a nice life for the next thirty five years. You know, in in Kent or Sussex, so I'm going to stay here. So they had a they had a basically a priest supply problem. They didn't have local, let's say, command, uh, and by and by local, I, I mean colonial. I don't mean specific to, uh, you know, Philadelphia or Richmond or something. But they have plenty of money, they have plenty of property, they have plenty of prestige, and I, I would say two things make them super brittle when conflict comes. Number one is that in a conflict, they tend to be. <laughs> stop me Lutherans, if you think this is familiar, outside of a few select areas, they tend to be the only kind of them, the, the only one of themselves in any given area. So if you go to, you know, whatever town in colonial America, there's probably one Anglican parish. There are exceptions to that, and those are going to be places they are going to be very loyalist, all things considered. But there aren't many of those places. So, so here's your Anglican parish in Savannah, Georgia. Here's your parish in Charleston. You know, maybe you have two there. Maybe there are a couple in Philadelphia. There's one in Lancaster. There's, you know, one in New Haven, Connecticut. If you have a weird opinion about something, especially the thing everyone is ready to fight about, <laughs> try not to be the only one of you in the area. <laughs> and by only one of you i don't i don't mean you know there's only like one anglican right it's just the the rector i mean you're the only congregation that thinks that because that just sets you up you're you're you are the isolated farmstead with plenty of resources other people want you're just going to be picked off and it, and it, and in the case of the anglicans this is like especially sort of sad for them or or unexpected because they generally were wherever they were they were better off in in the things of this world than other denominations because they were identified with the governing class of any colony even in new england where the where the state church was not anglican of course it was Congregationalist. so even if you have like every even if you have all of these advantages that like i'm saying like lutherans don't have you know Catholics don't have in in most places in America even if you have all those advantages when you are totally isolated it doesn't matter so you know i say this as somebody where you know people come to visit the west and they come to my church it's a great church it's great but if we were the only one of ourselves and we had no other connection to anybody else that that then none of that would matter you're you're almost like the rich fool in that case because things are really great and then suddenly they're not. The other thing about Anglicans is that in addition to being generally fairly isolated, they don't really have a, a plan for what comes next because their system is completely dependent on attachment to Britain and this is where the revolution is a little bit more it's instructive like whatever happens so i'm not saying like hey you know crazed tiktok video my words are scrolling as i'm sort of shouting in the middle of the microphone america is going to collapse in 5 years i'm saying the revolution is instructive because compared to the civil war the run up is real fast and and you would be excused if you know you know 15 years before lexington and concord you're you're like this is a british colony like obviously nobody has a problem with that anybody who does is weird you know this isn't going to happen human beings are so prone to underestimate the capacity for change especially negative change just in the sense of normal systems of life failing human beings we're just really prone to be like uh, i i don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, and then the power goes out, right? Is that Anglicans don't really have they already they already have they have they have a shortage of priests basically to even gather in the people who should be in their parishes in the in what become the United States already before the revolution. So, they've got if you're a church that's kind of a basic failure in the same sense that you know you're you're not you're not even hitting the softballs right you know it, it's coming at 60 miles an hour you know straight down the pike and and you can't even hit that like let alone any of the more difficult stuff so they're already failing at that but they also really don't have a way you know you're an anglican everything depends on having bishops they don't really have a way or a plan nobody's really thinking what if we are cut off from England for some reason. So having two
0: seminaries is a good idea.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know, maybe, (laughs) or maybe not at all. Right. Like, and, and the real, the real problem here is not that you have a structure that you're like, this is the structure. It's the Pope. It's, it's bishops who live in England. It's two seminaries. It's, Doug Wilson on podcasts, whatever your structure is, that's kind of holding you together right now. The, the problem is not that you have a structure. Of course, you have a structure. And of course, that structure is fragile, because it's a human structure, you know, you know, surprise, I believe the Pope is a human structure. Fine, you know, human structures are fragile by their nature, making fun of them incessantly isn't going to solve it. The real problem is the incapacity to discuss that human structure. And to imagine, what if it evaporates for thing for reasons that are not under our control? And then, what would we do? the The real problem is having zero capacity to discuss such things, for whatever reasons you have, whether they're political or you just you just lack imagination, (laughs) right, on some kind of collective level.
0: And again, that brings me back to you know, you know what? How does a pastor or a lay person go into the church council with? With this kind of knowledge and and as we go to that just two pieces of news yeah. you know today's yeah. thursday as we record i think our first uh, civil war episode just comes out today everyone will get that yep. today but as this is happening uh you know new york i don't know what part of new york state starting to empty schools and send the kids into online schooling in order to house uh, immigration busting up i believe from texas yeah uh, that's into a, yeah schools. that's NYC. and yeah and then also new york city Kabod uh, uh, synagogue, a very famous, say some underground tunnels and all sorts of stories about all sorts of things <laughs> you just thought no one would ever yeah. really believe, and now you're like, whoa! <laughs> right. So with with all that, you talk about things that would motivate people to change quickly.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: I think putting people in your house, like when they were when they were housing soldiers in people's homes, I think that probably moved people pretty quickly. Right? Yeah, it did. We're watching some of these kinds of things take place. And so, yeah, from there, back to where we were.
1: Right. So I would say that if you're talking specifically about a parish or a church council, that one thing you want to do is establish what, in revolutionary terms, were called committees of correspondence. And some of those structures already exist. They exist for the pastor in terms of the circuit, maybe, if it meets. The district maybe if it is it if it is somewhat functional and 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 i've seen functional ones and it's it's great but they generally don't exist for the laity and i don't really think that you can handle a future just through the clergy because the life of the church is bigger than the specific concerns of the clergy if you have a polity even even should you have a polity that is sort of clergy-led in a way that Lutherans usually are not. So let's say you are Roman Catholic or you are Anglican or you, for some reason, are listening to this and have an old-school ELCA church <laughs> where the pastor is the president of the church council or or whatever. Well, you, welcome
0: home. Right? Welcome
1: home. <laughs> You're probably literally my third cousin if, if you are such a person, so let's get in touch. But regardless of what your polity is, you kind of need the whole church to be in touch with the rest of the whole church. You, you can't really make it just by having the clergy agree on things because the Anglicans actually have that. The clergy, the Anglican clergy generally agree in being what, what come to be called loyalist or Tory in terms of the revolution. There are exceptions. Um, and those are going to be the guys who are going to build up from the ruins after the revolution and and obtain ordination so that you can have American bishops. That's all its its own saga. But by and large, they are loyalist and they are Tory. The fact that they agree with each other doesn't actually functionally matter when and where their laity don't agree with them. (laughs) So there are plenty of examples of Anglican clergy being run off in the revolution by their own laity. But it also, for the, for the future of the parish, matters that everyone is pulling in the same direction and that they're pulling in the same direction with other people in other places who can not only keep each other apprised of things. So the Committee of Correspondence sounds like it's just like, we're you know, we're, we're like a it's an 18th century group chat, right? We're keeping each other updated on stuff. That's part of it, but really it's a planning organization. It has an innocuous name because it predates the revolution. As revolution comes closer, and in certain places there are, you know, there are there are acts of violence or at least vandalism before Lexington and Concord that I would I would say, are we in a situation of guerrilla war? You know, maybe like there's the Gaspé affair in Rhode Island. That kind of stuff is going to happen through groups like the Committees of Correspondence, or they're called in some places the Sons of Liberty, and those are always based in various you know like the adamses are based you know south of boston others are based on the north shore of massachusetts but they're in correspondence with each other so they can communicate but even more importantly than communicating they can coordinate and that's something that the anglicans just just fail to do i mean i i think partly because they can't really imagine a world in which they aren't top dog
0: yeah and i think that is one of the difficulties of the times we're in is it is not impossible for all of us to imagine a world more different than it already has become. <laughs> right? It, it it just is like, it's enough. And yet, yet the telltale signs are there. We've been doing this show yeah. these years because there is a storm blowing and we can't tell you the precise date, but we can tell you that this is nothing new and that the rise and fall of nations has been going on for a long time with the church of Jesus Christ living according to his promises underneath it. And so so we remain here taking this stand and and really wanting to encourage you or you are to believe that the life of the church is indeed in the people. And so, yeah, correspondence, communication, knowing the person in the pew beside you, having the families care about and for each other enough that they would want to then talk to others who are like them across town or otherwise uh, about what we're doing uh, to get ready for, you know, what's next in the world you know, and what, what does that mean and finding out what that means from from within a little bit all of those things are, are huge and and they start with you in your home right uh are you a man listening especially if they start with you as the head of of your home in your future are you a woman listening nonetheless you know what does your husband think and in that conversation you know is, is he being supported so that he can stand in these times those kinds of you know marriage principle realities right those are the things that are going to be here no matter what you know your spouse may die in some coming conflict. yeah, you know you can come up with whatever story. It's fine. Marriage will be here. People will be given in marriage. People will have children. We will go on. The church will be alive. And again, like I said last week, I think this is a reason for great hope. i I agree with you, Dr. Coons, after thinking you know a little more about about last week's optimism pessimism talk. the uh, like i I'm in no way optimistic for the kind of, Oh gosh, wouldn't it be nice? I saw, I saw, you know, Q narrative, you know, Q Q narrative. <laughs> uh, I saw just a thing about Trump saying how he didn't enforce the, you know, the largest, you know, illegal immigration explosion. Okay, okay, I I can dream of the hope that it all just goes back to normal. But I think life is just far better when I wake up today and what what is normal forever is going to still be here. And, I, and those things, I don't think they can take away from us, Dr. Koontz. I really don't. And, and so my optimism is based upon the fact that when all of the things we quote unquote need are gone and the chastening of Jesus upon our society is and indeed, war is a bloody gory thing. And I would much rather have us have a slow decline into obscurity. That'd be way better. But but uh, when it all comes I am optimistic that the life of the church will be enhanced even more than it has been since 2020 because people will cease to be able to reckon with certain things. you know certain options just won't be there so they can't fight about it. And then other things, it will be evident how how frail or how vain these things are and 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 it will be too hard to go to church for many people like you said. Uh, you know, it's just the locality and all that. so, so what I think, again, is that what we'll see within the church is a, a spirit that as Lutherans, we believe he's there. <laughs> we do believe he's there. Yeah. And so that's my optimism there. And then in all the promises given to Israel, you know, Christians, I think we can claim these promises with a certain, you know, now but not yet solvency to them, um, that we should expect God to save us from the present calamities, That that we should call upon Jesus' name and think he will send answers and solutions. And until the day he wants us martyred and then i'm on all right but but until then i I think he plans for us to glorify his name by supremely facing the times we live in with a a confidence only trust in his sovereignty his creatorship his redemption his sanctifying and his his coming again all that you know it just empowers a foundation no no one else can fight with right and when we have that as a a people these stories they, they become you know problems to solve problems to solve so yeah, uh, we're at time here, I think, and I didn't have a nice clean line to close it. Do you have a nice clean line to close it?
1: I am uh, very bearish on capacity of groups, individuals, but also groups to handle the pace of change that comes when things spiral out of control. I am. I'm very bullish on Jesus's capacity. To handle things. So we're trying to align our thinking with his.
0: Yeah. Stand firm. You're listening to a brief history of power. You know where to find us or you would not be here.
1: What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at BlessedSacramentLutheranChurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful Inland Northwest.